Cho, author of Wicked Fox. And I'm Clarabel A. Ortega, author of Ghost Squad. And this is Write or Die. Hello. Okay. Hello. <laughs> we are back at it again. Um, yes. <laughs> I, my brain is completely mush. Oh, I will say, though, we never... I feel like we should add a corner where... I don't want to call it a corner because that's kind of copying mm. our favorite podcast. Mm. But I would love to add a section where we just talk about what we've been consuming lately. We can do I, that. I think that would um, be so fun. Yeah. So, um, yeah. What, so, have, my, what have you been consuming? <laughs> um, it's a little podcast you might be familiar with. It's called Celebrity Book Club. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but, I have heard of it. <laughs> Honestly, it's been great for me because, um, A, it's like, it feels very familiar and comforting, obviously, because you and Ryan are already my friends. Mm-hmm. And B, I need something that will get me to leave my house and just like go outside. And so what I've started to do is that I will go out every day and I'll take like a walk. It could be like, it could be like a 10 minute walk, honestly, or it could be like an hour walk. Mm. Um, And those are the times that I listen to Celebrity Book Club. So if I want to listen to it, I have to go for my walk. And like not, (laughs) it's not as if Model Land, which is the book that Clarabelle and Ryan are reading for this podcast, is like the most gripping of books. But I'm like, I really want to know what you guys think of it. (laughs) So it's been good. It's a good motivator for me. That's awesome. Yeah, Yeah. it's a, it's, it's equal parts like fun and also frustrating (laughs) to read the book because like, you know, you're reading so many missed opportunities and like, as a writer, like you can't help but read books sometimes and sort of like, see them through your own lens of a writer, right? And Mm -hmm, if the book mm -hmm. is not well done, like, it doesn't give you a chance to really get lost in the story. So like, all you do is like, think of it critically. (laughs) And like, that's all of reading Model Land, like the whole time. (laughs) You're thinking of all the things that are wrong and like all the ways that I would have fixed it Mm -hmm. and done things differently like all the missed opportunities and it's just it's it's really frustrating um I can totally tell but (laughs) but it's so it's so funny at the same time because it's just like it's over the top um I think we hit a little bit of a wall uh with the last episode that we did where we did three chapters because it was just Oh, my gosh. Well, two of the chapters were very, very short, like a Uh page and a half. Like nothing happened. But um, but like that combined with like the chapter 13, which was longer, it was just so over the top (laughs) bad that that me and Ryan were just like, (sighs) we were really angry. It is so interesting because I do remember like in an early episode, you said that you read in an interview that Tyra wanted it to be over the top to the point of campy. Right. And all I could think about was Beauty Queens by Libba Bray, which does camp so well. Yeah, this is nowhere near. Like, oh, my goodness. The caliber of Beauty Queens is really like. It's, it's on, top tier. It's, yeah, it's like that's like God tier. Yeah. Book, period. And then on top uh-huh. of that, it did camp like so, so well. Like she nailed uh-huh. it. Um, nailed there's still it. a plot. Like everything still makes a lot of sense, even mm-hmm. if it's over the top. Like everything serves what's what's happening in the book. Right. Um, uh-huh. 
But with Model Land, you're just bombarded with details that never matter again. So you, oh, no. so you're just not really sure like what you're supposed to be absorbing versus not absorbing. And oh no, yeah, and and I think it, that's hard for us to really get across to, to the audience because we're condensing it down to like the bare bones of yeah what's going on. But like there, like as little as this happened by now, we're like only like maybe like a hundred and. 30 pages in or something like that and yeah you would think like <laughs> that you're, you think you, things would have happened right like in a in in another YA book like a well done YA book like you would have been mm-hmm. like really like getting to the meat of the story and she's just now arriving at model land like a oh. hundred some odd pages before and there's nothing really that happens that's very important before wow. that so oh it's a goodness. lot it's a lot of unnecessary fluff but <laughs> but we have fun we laugh a lot and we drink a lot of alcohol because it's the only way to get through recording to be honest <laughs> well i am definitely a stan i i very much appreciate it as as a form of entertainment and a way to get myself to <laughs> exercise. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, it's I'm glad uh, people are seem to really be enjoying the show. So our suffering is not in vain. <laughs> what about you? What have you been listening to or reading or watching? Um, so I I've been listening to a lot of um, Midsummer Maniacs, which is a podcast, a recap podcast, but based on what's probably my biggest comfort show which is called Midsummer Murders I think you've probably heard oh, me talk about yes. this mm-hmm. it's um it's a a long running like detective cozy mystery show from England <laughs> um it's been going on since the early 90s it's still running and it's like very like kooky characters in the show um mm-hmm. but it's also like <laughs> because it's set in like small towns and it has like very like like the music is like it's like like happy um wallace and gromit it's yeah it's like it's very like comforting but then there's like a dead body um so it's just it's just like fun and and it is like sort of campy as well and um and I've been I've been rewatching it as I do like all the time. And I've been listening to uh, Midsummer Maniacs, which is a husband and wife duo who uh, recap the episodes. And, and they're just so funny. And they're just they really love the show. And I'm pretty sure it's the only podcast about Midsummer Murders, which is the only one that I've been able to find. Um, and it's it's also fun because like they each have the, like their little niche that they sort of grabbed onto and the husband he loves to look he's he's very like detail oriented he'll look at all the signage and the sort of uh like they'll have like pamphlets or magazines and he'll like zoom in and he'll tell us about them so it'll be like the first paragraph was about whatever they were talking about in the show but then it'll be like a microsoft word uh uh, manual (laughs) after that they like use to fill in the um the rest of the magazine or whatever just like little tidbits like that and they'll tell you like where things were really filmed and stuff about the actors they pick their favorite corpse 
of the show. <laughs> so like who was the best dead body? Like who stayed the most still? Um it's 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 a it's a fun show. It's like definitely for people who have more of a morbid like sense of humor, but uh which I totally do. So um so yeah, so that's my that's what I've been listening to and I've been watching K dramas but I haven't stopped. I started and I have not stopped. Good. That's what we like to hear. <laughs> Watching uh, True Beauty right now, also mm-hmm. startup, and uh, I just started a show today. Actually, that's not a K drama, but it's like a game show. Busted. Oh my god, Busted! <laughs> it's Busted is interesting because it's like a s- full storyline that goes throughout the whole season, mm. uh, but it's a variety show. Yeah, which is. Not really very normal for a game show variety show in Korea. It's those are usually episodic where mm-hmm. it's like in this episode, you're a detective and in the next episode, you're an astronaut. And then, so the fact that they're detectives trying to solve this mystery the whole season is very new. Um, it's so cool, though. it's 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 interesting. I mean, it's obviously them trying something because they're how they have this partnership with Netflix. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. It, I just it was just like the first episode. Truly, like I haven't even finished it, but it's it was re- it's really funny so far. So, um, do you recognize any of the star celebrities? I don't because I'm watching. Oh. Se- I'm watching season one, and I don't know any of the celebrities mm-hmm. from any of the shows that i've watched i'm fairly new to like key drama yeah. and all that yeah. stuff i did recognize like i saw the sort of the preview for the third season and i did recognize people in that one but yeah. not in the first one i looked them up though and i saw like <laughs> one of them was like a member of exo like i know who that is but i yeah, don't really know the band really well um i just know the one guy because he was on roommates <laughs> the one with the well he had red hair in that part of it and like he was really young he had like these cute adorable ears yeah Um, that's Daniel he's my bias (laughs) not that anyone needs to know who my bias at EXO is he's adorable he's He's very he's very funny and charismatic he's like he's like made to be a celebrity on the show he was great yeah Mm. he was he was one of my favorites on roommates nice I think the mm. one thing I will say about variety shows, and you'll start to you'll start to notice this as you like watch more shows and like actually consume more media, and then and then also watch variety shows. Like Korean variety shows are so fun for the audience because it is celebrities doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's like imagine if like George Clooney and like um, Salma Hayek and like Timothy Chalamet were like chasing each other trying to find clues you I know would, to I would watch the hell out of that are you kidding me so that's why Korean variety shows are like so huge like you know I like I think America what we do with our variety shows is the idea of like oh everyday Joe you can win a million dollars which is great like it's it it speaks to like the American dream and stuff like that but in Korea they're like we know that you love your celebrities so much that you want to see them doing ridiculous things. <laughs> so um, that's yeah. what they do for us. And, and it's pretty it's pretty fantastic. So I can't wait for you to get to the point where you do recognize them and you're like, oh, my God, my favorite drama actor. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, Roommates was like that. Uh, mm-hmm. There were definitely people well, Gong, that I recognize uh, on that show. Not Gong Yoo. Lee was in it. Yeah. From he- Goblin. Yeah, he, I love him. Um, I would love to watch a show where George Clooney uh, chases <laughs> Timothy Chandelier. That would be amazing. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> um, 
anyway so that's great i i will definitely have to um have to check out that that podcast because you made me watch some of midsummer i remember we watched some of it when we were like i think we were on a road trip and you're like can we fall asleep to this show that's my go-to i'm always listening to like murder podcasts and watching murder shows to fall asleep yeah yeah but i i always like it when my uh, media collides like a show that i love there's people talking about it in a podcast I know mm, about a lot, mm-hmm. so. yeah it's really Absolutely. fun and it's a fun like nighttime podcast too because they're i don't know they're they they're like parents and they sound soothing but they're also like hilarious and really fun um i recommend it <laughs> but let's talk about something else let's talk about publishing let's talk <laughs> about publishing a publishing podcast yeah if, if people did not know <laughs> i saw one of our one of our reviews is like they take a long time to get to the point it's like did you just get here this is what we always do like you can press fast forward we always we chat skip. in the beginning that's the format of the podcast get with the program yeah. we're, um, we're not like you know we're not trying to be here being like formal npr mm-hmm. you know this american life or anything like that it's literally we're, the opposite of the point just we're so, just two friends yeah. talking about publishing and our experiences in publishing but Okay, so now let's get to the point. So <laughs> this is there's something that I've actually um, I feel like it's interesting to talk about because people don't talk about it a lot, um, and that's whisper networks. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it's um, been a topic of uh, conversation on uh, online recently too. Yeah, I I feel like you know, it comes up every once in a while because every once in a while there'll be something that happens and half of the people are like, oh, we know everything about this. And half Mm. of people will be like, I've never heard this. And it comes out that the half that know about it, heard about it from friends or a friend of a friend through these things that we call whisper networks. But for anyone who doesn't know what a whisper network is, Clarabelle, do you mind kind of like giving a little yeah summary overview basically it's what it sounds like it's like an underground like information network where writers sort of warn each other about like shady agents or publishers or things to watch out for but sort of like on the down low because you don't want to get in trouble right like i can't if anyone has watched any of the things that have been happening lately on Twitter where someone will call out like an agent or someone who's doing things like they'll get sued or they'll get, you know, that agent might then turn around and t- talk badly to editors about the writer, which I mm-hmm. we know through the Whisper Network happens. Um, and so people do it to protect themselves. Um, yeah. And it's it's difficult to hear that because it's like, well, what about new writers? What about people who don't have access to that information? And like, we agree, (laughs) you know, and I think the problem is not the problem is not writers who won't risk their own reputation to uh, to talk about these things. The problem is the publishing industry that doesn't allow for people to talk about things um, openly and because they 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 punish us and i mean you see it all the time someone tries to call out like anyone there will be people who are already entrenched in publishing sort of come out and sometimes invalidate those experiences um it's hard it's it's hard because publishing is so subjective mm, so 
there's no real i mean e- even with terms that we use to try to be helpful like this is a schmagen or schmagency i'm sure if you if you do a poll of like 10 people on the street what is what defines a schmagen they will have completely different answers for you right. like what their limit is you know, some people will be like, oh, they can't sell your book. And some people will be like, they don't communicate. And some people will be like, they straight out, they have to straight up lie to you to be a Shemajan. Right. So I think that, you know, it, it's really hard for us to say definitively, oh, this person is dangerous because inevitably there will be somebody who comes out that says, that's not my experience. Right. Absolutely. And and it also gets especially complicated when people co-opt sort of like the language of social justice and use all these keywords to sort of come after people that they just happen to not like, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. happens a lot. And it gives a bad name to the moments when people are actually calling stuff out because that's not what that's not what it's supposed to be for. You know what I mean? It's not supposed to be, let me smear the name of the person who annoyed me once or like Mm -hmm. subtweeted me and made me feel sad for an hour (laughs) one Sunday. And like, yeah. And that, that does a lot of harm as well in the industry. So it gets really difficult to like trust, like where the information's coming from, which is why it's also why whisper networks happen. Right. Because Mm -hmm. if I was to open myself up, right. Like, if a writer that I don't know was like, who are the agents that are like really bad? I don't mm-hmm. know that writer. What if I tell them and they go back and tell the agent or tell like a whole Facebook group, Clarabel Ortega told me this. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I am, <laughs> you know, in the middle of this thing because I'm trying to help. And that's another consideration that yeah. authors take as well that, we tell people that we trust not because we're trying to hoard information, but because we're trying to protect ourselves, especially authors of color, which is so funny because we're often the ones that call stuff out anyway. Yeah, um, because we're so used to injustice right. that we have a better handle on how to react to it. Whereas like if you're not used to being oppressed, it's very oh, it's very common and it's very normal for you to be frozen. Right. To be like I don't understand why this is happening Mm. and not know how to respond. But if you're someone who grew up like constantly being oppressed, you're like, okay, this is wrong. It should not be happening. Right. And it's, it's always hard to sort of call things out because people are going to react differently. And like, especially when you're a person of color, when you call something out, um, you get such a strong reaction from people. Just the other day, this happened where I said something and then Laura Sebastian said the exact same thing. And Laura Sebastian was like, it's funny how I say these things constantly and I get almost absolutely no slack for them. And Mm -hmm. other people get piled on for saying it. She's like, I wonder why that is. And like, I appreciate (laughs) authors like that who like (laughs) not only are speaking about things but who point out the fact that they're able to speak about them without any repercussions oh yeah for sure katie Locke is one Mm. that i've seen constantly talk about privilege in on twitter and you know i i i've seen and i've seen agents do it too there's there's white agents who will call these things out like kelly van sant is definitely one that stands Mm. out in my mind and i think it's really it's really important to know who to trust on twitter yeah as well it is i think i think the biggest thing when looking at like a feed like katie's or or laura's or kelly's is that they they say specifics and they say it they say facts they don't just Mm -hmm. give vague opinions and i think that's a big thing right it's that 
um, and a person's opinion is still is valid. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying that if a person is constantly warning you because they heard shady things and that's literally the most specific that they can be, then I think it's totally fine for you to be like, well, I would need a little bit more information. Absolutely. Of course, mm-hmm. of course don't push back in like a rude way because if this person is a victim, then you don't want to be piling on to them. Right. But, I mean, this is a situation that you and I ran into recently where, um, you know, we had a friend who was asking about um, certain agents and we had information, but it wasn't ours to specify. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we were like, well, I heard that they might do certain certain unsavory things. And the person was like, tell me specific stories. And we're like, well, I cannot. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And that and that happens a lot. It's really difficult to and I understand sort of the the instinct to say like we should just talk about these things out loud because it's not fair to new writers and I completely agree but again it's really complicated and it's really sticky um Mm -hmm. for people to put their necks out uh when it comes to these things because even when we do there are people who do not listen to us Mm -hmm. and who just still do their own thing so we end up sort of sacrificing ourselves um for nothing because the agents usually get away with whatever it is they're doing. Um, so it's really it's, it's really frustrating. It's so hard, too, because even if, even if I was just using the last year, so January 2020 to January 2021, there's been actually a bunch of call outs. And part of it was so um, part of it felt like we were getting further than we had ever gotten before because people were finally listening. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about like around June 2020. When people were calling out racist actions in, in of big publishing companies, not not necessarily individuals, but people with platforms. So like a literary agency, a publishing company, um, you know, a, a book packager, things like that. And people were listening and saying, we hold you accountable. What's your response? We're not going to we're not going to let you just pretend this didn't happen. And it was great. But on the other end of that, multiple people got threatened with lawsuits. Mm hmm. And multiple people had to fear for their livelihood. Multiple people got fired, like suddenly without cause. Yeah. And and this was it, it was a risk that, you know, a lot of them will say they understood that they were taking by speaking up. But it's also so unfair that in that something like, OK, this company is doing something wrong let's ask them to do better the response of the company instead of being like i'm listening to you whatever is i'm gonna get people fired Mm -hmm. um and so you know so that those instances alone are the reasons why a lot of people even though we got further in june than we had for and for many call outs in the past many people are really scared because those are the consequences that came of it yeah it's not just people getting mad at you on twitter it's like people mm-hmm. not just you, you might get sued but you know what ends up happening is there's a very specific uh, subset of twitter users who are usually racist and these are mm-hmm. the people who are yelling about censorship and if they find out something like this happens they target you and they mm-hmm. harass you and i can't count the number of times that you know women of color have been run off of social media for speaking about things out loud rather than letting it 
sit quietly in you know the, in the whisper networks and talking mm-hmm. about something out loud um but publishing loves to protect the status quo mm-hmm. and unfortunately um it's not just publishers it's not just agents um people who have nothing to do with publishing get involved um and then you oh my gosh yes and then newer writers as well sometimes will uh will sort of gang up on people because they're seeing it as you attacking their uh opportunity rather than protecting Mm -hmm. them um i remember there was a time in the db pit hopefuls group where we were trying to warn people about a specific agent and this one author just could not handle us saying it it's it, it wasn't even their agent right no not at all yeah um, she was like every agent is bad and like look at this person's sales records and like me and cat were like yeah they sell to like little presses and they send <laughs> they send they bcc submissions from people that they haven't even signed yeah, they sell to they sold to publishers that have open submissions, meaning you do not need an agent to submit to that publisher. Not, not just that, but if you query this agent, they will take your manuscript and send it directly to publishers without signing you and yeah. without your consent. You would think mm-hmm. that writers would want to know about something like that. That's a completely heinous. <laughs> but we got pushback on yeah. that. And that's just and an example. Yeah, we said so many specifics, but that's just an example also because I think that the power dynamics in publishing are such that make whisper net- networks thrive because we put agents and publishers on pedestals. They sort of like have us all by the balls and we're not <laughs> able to say or do anything because our ver- very own community is protecting them, you know, other agents, other yeah. publishers, other writers. So it's it's it, it can be really frustrating to not have a free flow of information, but that is not our fault. That's publishing's fault. That's the institution. <laughs> like we should be, I said this at the beginning of the year, we need to stop fighting each other and fight like the actual industry and these like rich executives who are keeping us this way because that's who's responsible. It's not you or you and me. <laughs> We're trying yeah. our best to call shit so out. Yeah. Um, but um, before we hmm. finish talking about this, do you have – I know that one thing that people will probably really want to know is any advice on how to get into a community with trusted people that they can share information with or, or ask for information from. Yeah. I know it's really hard, but, you know, maybe we can give some advice about how to try to start doing that. Well, I have some suggestions. First of all, it's good to, like – um to go to uh, websites like the Absolute Right forums and um, Query Tracker, places where people write down information about the agents that they're querying and sift through that. Google the agents um, as well with like information like shady agent, fraud, mm-hmm. uh, agent. <laughs> like like Google that agent's name like with those different words because you never know where it will lead to. Um, mm-hmm. I'll also say, like, I'm not going to encourage anyone to use a certain social media platform because it's evil and the devil. But there's a lot (laughs) of writer groups that are starting on Discord and Slack. And every once in a while, people post about them on Twitter. Um, Finding friends, writer friends on Twitter, um, I think, is a good idea. And then that will sort of, like, open up the floodgates to other things. That's how we started, you know. Um, So I think that that's a good start it might not be immediate Mm -hmm. you have to interact with people genuinely in order for it to happen (laughs) 
But I would know people. It's about trust. Yeah. Trust someone if you don't know them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Especially with information that could get you into serious trouble. You're not just going to say it to the first person you meet or you shouldn't Mm -hmm. because you don't know what their intentions are. Um, So I would say that I would say definitely in terms of research, start on those websites where you're getting information directly from writers Um, and also look for agents names on Twitter with those words as as well, Mm -hmm. because sometimes people make threads and stuff warning you Um, and then just like sort of become part of like writing like the writing community online, like with time and those doors will open up to you if people start to see like hey this person is genuine like don't think you're gonna get there and like the next day you're gonna be welcomed in immediately because that's not how it works with anything in life it takes Mm -hmm. a little bit of time um yeah i mean you can also join you can also join facebook groups they're not as secure so that's the one i was trying not to uh (laughs) get publicity give publicity to because fuck (laughs) facebook but well, I will say this is I'm going to say do it because but do it as a first step. Don't do it mm. as like this is my community. I can post anything I want here and ask anything I want here. But a Facebook group is that is centered around a common interest. Like there's one called Writer Reno's, like people who listen to my favorite murder who are also writers. Mm. There's our Writer Die community. There's Kayla Authors of Color. There's, you know, DV Pitt Hopeful's Facebook group. So it's a place where like people are in it because they have something other than writing connecting them Mm. and then once you if you're interacting with a handful of people over and over and over again then you can be like oh well hey you want to like start a little dm group or something like Mm. three of us that could work but but i would say if you're in a facebook group treat it as public as as your twitter feed yeah for sure Because it can say it's private and people take screenshots. It's happened before plenty of times. Yes. Yes. So, but yeah, that's where I would say to to start to, uh, I'm not going to endorse Facebook, but. (laughs) um, I would say use it to your advantage, but be smart about it. Yeah. We know that all of our listeners are very smart people. So. Geniuses. Faith in you. Geniuses. <laughs> with your and with your unlimited budgets to buy twenty copies of each, geniuses Wait. and billionaires <laughs> listening to our podcast, just rich, beautiful, smart, all of it. Yeah, you like talented, funny, <laughs> flexible, flexible, <laughs> athletic, athletic, great rhythm, great, the great. best I've ever seen. Yeah, um, <laughs> we're on drugs um, today. What else? I, you know, one thing that I will say, and this is like, honestly, I don't, if, if you don't want to spend a lot of time on Twitter, I support you. Twitter is awful a mm. lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But if you're on Twitter anyway, then follow the agents that you do have on your list of uh, who you want to query and just pay attention to what they're tweeting every once in a while. You don't have to stalk them. <laughs> okay. But a lot of agents do show their true colors with their tweets. Uh, whether mm-hmm. it's that they're true advocates or whether it's that they are, you know, fascists. Um, <laughs> Oops. I mean, come on. We've seen both and we've seen both very recently. Um, so, you know, it's it's a way of vetting of vetting the agents. Um, and then you make the decision based on what your limits are. You know, if you're like totally OK with someone. <laughs> I was going to say with someone being a fascist, but I hope you're not listening to this podcast if. That's what you are. I mean, God. Anyway, use use your own judgment. That's what I'm saying. 
Yes, do it. Don't be a butt. Ride or Die is brought to you in part by Tee Public. Tee Public is home to independent art on stickers, cases, shirts, and more. Check out our Write or Die store at tpublic.com slash stores slash Write or Die podcast. Check it out now. Our guest this week is Anna Marie McLemore. They are the author of The Weight of Feathers, When the Moon Was Ours, Wild Beauty, Blanca and Roja, Dark and Deepest Red, Miss Meteor, co-authored with Taylor K. Mejia, and the forthcoming The Mirror Season. A lot of what they write could be called magical realism. Much of it is inspired by fairy tales. Almost all of their stories find their heart in the traditions they grew up in and the communities they belong to. Anna Marie, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. We're so excited. So excited. I know. We just had a twin moment. Like, <laughs> we're so excited. Um, I would definitely say that um, you're, you're definitely an author that we've been wanting to get onto the podcast mm. for a while. So this, is, this has been long time coming for us. You didn't know, but we were coming for you. Big moment for ride or die. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. And how are how are you both doing, especially in the in the strange publishing world we're in right now? Oh, you know, <laughs> hanging on by a string. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you know, really embracing that whole celebrate the small victories mm-hmm. thing. Like, I got out of bed. I put on normal pants. Yeah, I yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, just doing what you can. I think it's really hard right now to have like deadlines and people waiting on work like on the one hand it's nice to have something to distract you on the other hand it can get overwhelming to know you mm-hmm. have to be creative <laughs> no matter what yeah. uh so it has its ups and downs um but we want to talk about you <laughs> okay uh oh wait cat how are you doing i just completely skipped over cat no, rude I'm fine I said yeah. I'm fine. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so we want to know about your uh, publishing journey, sort of how you started writing, when you got your first agent, um, publishing deal. It doesn't have to be like like a thoroughly exhaustive history, but if you could just take us through sort of the general uh, journey that you went through, that would be great. Well, my first book, Weight of Feathers, was a book where I, I felt like I was testing waters to a certain extent because I was... I was writing about my communities. I was writing this romance between these these two teens of color, and it felt like things that I really wasn't supposed to be doing. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm getting away with something as I do this. Um, and I was grateful to have a lot of support with that. But when I got to writing my second book, um, and I won't say, it, I, this was the book that I'd say was like, the manuscript that became the manuscript that became the manuscript that became the book when the moon was ours, because this was several, like several versions, like removed from what it eventually became. I, I got to a place before I wrote when the moon was ours. I thought, okay, I've, I've gotten away with something writing about my community, writing about this, um, this Latinx family. So I need to be a good author now and go write about like, like white straight cis people. Um, it did not go well because my heart was not in it at all. So after a while of trying to like write this second book that um, I was grateful to have under contract, but also we hadn't specified what it was. So it was just, it was just going to be whatever my editor and I agreed on after just going at this book that I thought needed to be white and straight and cis, I thought, I eventually thought like, okay, I just need to go for it. And I just need to, I need to write 
what is in my heart. I need to write what kind of story is, is really calling to me. So that's what, that's what sort of gave way to when the moon was ours is writing this, this book that ended up being like, as not, as not white and not straight and not cis as you can pretty much get. Um, and finding out that that was really, that was really my home as a storyteller was talking about identity and talking about the communities that, that I belong to. That's great. That's really interesting. You, you've written so many books, like as Kat was going through your uh, bio, I was like, dang, um, <laughs> you know, in like a short amount of time, like it's not easy to publish uh, so many books and, and also to be as beloved as you are people really love you and love your books and I know whenever you announce a book people on Twitter really just lose their complete shit because they're so excited (laughs) for something else from you um I'm interested to know uh what uh the co-writing experience for you was like because that's always something that like me and Kat have talked about it we have a we have an idea um, <laughs> that we've been slowly like working on like seed. over years. Um, but uh, but what what was it like working with a Taylor who I adore? Um, and and how does that differ from when you you know, you're writing like your 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 books on your own? So when we started talking about the process of writing this book, like um, when we've talked about writing Miss Meteor, when we get the question of like, what was the co-writing process like, we both usually go to the same word and that's whirlwind because we we wrote the first draft of this book really really fast I think it was in eight days um and I and that was partly because every every time every time one of us wrote a chapter it was because we wanted the reward of getting the of getting the other person's chapter so (laughs) at first we had kind of we had kind of thought like okay we'll write we'll exchange maybe a chapter a day, we'll get this done in a month. But we both wanted to know what happened so much with the other person's chapter (laughs) that we just kept writing. Um, And it was it was a messy draft, but so much of the heart that's still in that book um, was there from the beginning. Um, That was also a situation where we thought like, okay, like, we know that this is going to be about two Latina girls. Can we make it straight? Are we capable of doing that? Let's just see if we're capable of doing that. I think we lasted like, like 18 hours. Um, But so we, we sort of had this, we sort of ended up on the same page about what we wanted to do with this book and how we wanted it, how we wanted it to feel both, um, both from the identity aspect. And also we wanted to, we wanted to write something that, that was, that was fun. That was these, these two Latina girls just getting, um, getting into these, into these antics and getting into these capers and just having this, this grand plan to upset the beauty pageant and to, to save this Selena themed diner. And it just, it just ended up, it ended up being fun to write in the same way that, um, that I hope it's fun to read and that we've, we've been grateful to hear that, that it's fun to read. So that was the initial, that was the initial process of drafting it. And as we edited it, we pretty much stayed with writing. Um, like I wrote, I wrote Lita's chapters, and and Taylor wrote Chicky's chapters. So we would keep doing that. Like I'd revise my chapters, and Taylor would revise would revise Chicky's chapters. But anything that was sort of world or or plot related or problem solving, that was something we always did. To, we always did together because it was this um, this town of Meteor was 
just something that was in our in our collective brain together. I, I love, love that. that. Selena so themed diner. I want to go to there. <laughs> God. Um, <laughs> did you did you guys ever have a conversation about your natural writer voices? Because you do both have very distinct author voices, um, which is kind of what makes your books, both of your books, like so immersive to read for for readers. Um, did you ever have a moment where you're like, should we talk about this? Or did, do you think it just kind of just connected easily from the very beginning I think that part felt pretty natural because we decided we decided to use the differences in our voices to really define these characters and I think they ended up fitting together because we had talked about this town for so long we had even though we we drafted we drafted the first draft so quickly we had been talking about this concept for months so even though it had been months of okay what is the actual like what is what is the actual arc of the story this town had kind of been building for us, and along with that, some of the some of the tone of of the narrative. So I think when we ended up writing it, we were able to sort of use what the differences in in our voices ended up ended up being, because um, they just had to they had to fit they had to fit in that world together. And because it was sort of these two characters kind of kind of talking to each other, and because in a way we were talking back and forth, exchanging chapters. Um, that was something that that felt really natural and and worked really well. Um, I honestly I don't know how um, how co-authors write like one voice together. It's mm-hmm. um, it's it's something yeah. I'm so interested in. Um, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of like um, Sona and Danielle writing um, writing tiny pretty things because they have the three points of view. And that's just, it's, it's an incredible, it's an incredible art form of any, any kind of co-authoring. It's an incredible kind of art form that I'm always interested in learning in because I know how I did it with Taylor, but I don't know how, I don't know how everyone else does it. So Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a little different every time and I love hearing about it. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I, and I'm, I'm sure that everyone does have like a different process because, even just writing your solo books by yourself, like your process would probably be super duper different. And um, with that in mind, do you kind of feel like, I mean, you know, you've kind of been like pushed forward as the the representation of magical realism in modern young adults, um, you know, and you've been around for long enough that, you know, your name is is very widely recognized. Do you kind of feel like, your writing process has changed between when you first debuted and now and do you think that like your brand that has been kind of pushed upon you has affected that at all I think the process ends up a little different for every single book I've had I've had books like um, and this happened in this happened with weighted feathers and this also happened with um with mirror season coming out coming out in March where it was just this very this very sort of bare bones draft that I had to build up and build up and build up um, versus other books. It's just been, I, I have to start over. I have to sort of find the story again um, and just, just write the entire thing again. So I think the process, um, the process has changed each from, from book to book. And in terms of, in terms of magical realism, the, the interesting thing with um, my relationship with magical realism, it's something I love. It's sort of my, my literary home. Um, it's also a term that I didn't really know until, um, until I was told that I was writing it. I just, I, it's 
probably being Latinx. I just thought like, I thought this was just storytelling. So sort of embracing that and talking with other authors about, about how we, how we use magic in a community sense, how we use magic to reflect what's going, what's going unspoken, to reflect things that communities need to talk about, and also to reflect their strengths. That's something that's, that's something that's really meaningful to me. And I think that that idea of the magic of community, that's going to be there in my work, even if I'm not necessarily writing magical realism, just because that's part of, that's part of my heart as a storyteller. And I think that's, I think that's part of my heart and my life too. I love that so much. And I love that you write uh, magical realism. That's actually magical realism. There's a lot of like <laughs> misunderstanding about the the genre and like what it means and where, what, it, where it comes from. Uh, but for people who aren't sort of familiar with magical realism, could you from in like your own words, describe what it is? So a couple of things that usually come to mind for me with magical realism are the idea of oppression, finding finding beauty in the midst of the tragic, um, finding finding that which is beautiful and that which is extraordinary in the midst of the heartbreaking. Um, and also the and also coming back to that idea of community, that's the other component of it. Uh, the magic usually doesn't belong to any any one particular person. It's more like um, it's more like this current. If anything, it belongs to a community, or it's unpredictable. It's it's like water. It's just it's gonna go where it's gonna go, and you don't you you don't really know like what it's what it's gonna screw up next. You don't really know where where it's gonna come up, where it's gonna appear, um, how it might mess things up. But ultimately, like how it might tell you things you need to know and make you make you face things that you need to confront and make your make your community address or confront or embrace things that that it needs to see. I really love that so much. Um, wow. Yeah. For Luceli Luna, ghosts are more than just the family business. Shortly before Halloween, Luceli and her best friend Sid cast a spell that accidentally awakens malicious spirits wreaking havoc throughout St. Augustine. Together, they must join forces with Sid's witch grandmother Babette and her tubby tabby chunk to fight the haunting head-on and reverse the curse to save the town and Luceli's firefly spirit before it's too late. With the family dynamics of Coco, an action-packed adventure of Ghostbusters, Clarabel A. Ortega delivers both a thrillingly spooky and delightfully sweet debut novel with Ghost Squad. Order today at buyghostsquad.com. The choices made in Wicked Fox have had far-reaching effects, and Myung's friends are about to find out the dire consequences. The forces that govern life and death have been upended, and there are supernatural entities lurking in the background that will stop at nothing to right their world. New romance and dangers abound in Vicious Spirits, the companion novel to the crowd-pleasing Wicked Fox. This contemporary fantasy duology finds inspiration in Korean mythology, culture, and K-dramas. Wicked Fox has been called a vibrant debut novel that employs Korean genre conventions for an utterly original take on the young adult fantasy by Entertainment Weekly and fresh and fast-paced by School Library Journal Review. Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits are out now from Penguin Random House wherever books are sold. So so you uh, just recently... Like- fresh off the presses announced um a new a new book 
that's going to be coming out um, in 2022. Uh, so it's a retelling of The Great Gatsby. Congratulations, first of all. Yes. So super excited. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about uh, about that, how the idea came about and uh, sort of what can we expect? So I'm I'm so excited about about doing this because as, as I was talking a little bit um, before we started recording, Great Gatsby is one of those books that I I kind of loved and hated at the same time, and that's often where <laughs> I come from when I'm writing reimaginings. So how this came about um, is Emily Settle, who's the who's the editor of this of this series um, of of authors re reimagining classics and. Gosh, I'm so I'm so so excited for for the books that are coming out. Um, Bethany Morrow is is doing Little Women. Um, just got an amazing lineup of authors, and I cannot wait for every every single one of of these books. So Emily specifically asked me to write The Great Gatsby because she she had this idea that um, she wanted to see what I would do with like the the 1920s glamour and also all of the all of the sort of like calling bullshit on the American dream kind of stuff. Am I allowed to swear on this? I'm <laughs> yes, sorry. Yes, totally. Okay. So I, she talked to me about what, about wanting to see what I would do with that. And I, I'm paraphrasing here, but I, I basically said like, you, you know, that this is, this is going to end up very brown and very queer and very trans by the time I'm done with this. And she was kind of like, yeah, I, I kind of would expect nothing less. So um, I'm, I was really, I was really excited to go for it. And I'm still in the, I'm still in the, or in the stages of like researching everything and just pulling all of the research together. But I started getting this, I started getting this concept of like, okay, I really, I really want to go all of these places that I wanted the original book to go, but it really didn't. Um, I mean, come on with like Gatsby and Nick, like all of the stuff that um, all of the stuff that Nick says in this book, um, Amina May Safi and I were were texting about this. Um, um, Amina is also writing one of the one of the um, the classics reimaginings. We were just going back and forth about some of these about some of these passages where Nick is just like staring at Gatsby. So we were just like going back and forth and being and being like his. His house is so well formed, and the throttle <laughs> on his car, and it was just, it, and we were just thinking of like all this stuff that's there in the text, but, but, isn't isn't addressed. Like this idea of, this idea of obsession with someone, this this idea of of looking at someone, and, and Nick sort of does that with Gatsby in the same way that that Gatsby does that with Daisy. Also, Daisy, I just really wanted to write her as. Um, as a lesbian socialite. So she's, uh, she's going to be a Latina lesbian socialite in my, in my version of this. And I just want to, I want to write about all kind of the, the glitter and the ridiculousness of all the glamour and like the debutante balls that were happening at this time. And like all of the ways that we conceive of like, um, I'm just going to talk about research forever. Please like tell me to shut up when you're, when you're like, done with me talking about research. <laughs> but like all this research I was doing about debutante balls in this time period, like the ways that we think of like 
the ways that we think of like makeup trends now and we're, we're like, oh, that's like, that's very 2017. We're not doing that anymore. Like that kind of, that kind of attitude has always kind of been around. You have these like 1920s debutante balls where they're saying like, can you believe she used pink roses? That's so 1915. <laughs> um, <laughs> and everything that we think of as as very like contemporary it was there it was just in a different incarnation yeah so um people have stayed the same through history we just have different things that we've gossiped about exactly exactly <laughs> we've always been petty uh, huh <laughs> <laughs> that'll that'll be the alternate title yes 1920s pettiness <laughs> uh, actually the work the working title the working title right now um which which we're we're going to change as much as i wish we weren't is the um i just have the file called the gay gatsby which is kind of <laughs> my <laughs> god please that's what i'm gonna call it i'm sorry Listen, it's the gay gatsby <laughs> in the fandom in the fandom that's what it's called yes the gay gatsby it's um that's, that's really amazing. how amazing between like um, between between Nick and Jay, and I'm so excited um, to write Jay Gatsby as as a trans guy because it just feels it yeah. feels right for this mm-hmm. idea of um, this idea of creating yourself, this idea of you're you're deciding who you become because like all of us do that to some extent, and there's a and there's a definite process with that with gender identity of mm-hmm. claiming who you are and deciding who you are. Um, and that was as soon as I started thinking about this, I thought, OK, like Gatsby's got to be a trans guy. That's what I want to do with this. Mm-hmm. Have you heard the theory that Gatsby's wife wrote like huge chunks of or not Gatsby, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife wrote huge chunks of Great Gatsby? I have not. Oh, my God. I'm going to send you I'll send you some articles about it. So her name's Zelda. Yeah. And she was like a rebellious spirit apparently she like smoked and she like drank alcohol and she would sneak out and spend time with boys and she would jump into fountains and stuff um and she would also write a lot and she like kept her own journals and things like that and people claim that f scott fitzgerald took whole passages from zelda's journal and published it in the great gatsby and so um I if that's true I I wonder if like some of the descriptions of like Gatsby is actually from the perspective of like a woman you know which might be interesting I definitely want to read about this and it I I wonder how often this is true of great works like Mm -hmm. how many like how many how many like minds and hearts that we don't we don't know about or don't acknowledge have gone into into these these great works of literature mm-hmm. it's sad because like i'm sure there are so many uh, you know female art like authors from times past that weren't allowed to publish under their own names who th- their work was attributed to their male counterparts because that's the only way to get out there at the time yeah and even i think don't don't quote me on this, but I, I think there was some exchange between um, F. Scott Fitzgerald and I think it was Willa Cather. She wrote, did Willa Cather write A Lost Lady? I don't know. This is where you really have to not quote me. It's been a, um, it's, it's been a while since I read that book. Um, I, I really liked that book because it was short. Like I'm dyslexic, so short books, <laughs> made, short books made me feel really accomplished in school. So he 
he basically like pulled a character from this novel from Willa Cather's novel and like made her into Daisy Buchanan so much so that like when Willa Cather wrote to him he kind of couldn't deny it and he didn't deny it so as much as like I love this book there's problematic stuff in the pages there's problematic stuff in the creation of it and like surrounding it so like Kind of if if F. Scott Fitzgerald would be like would be like yeah go for it like make a make a trans Gatsby then that would be wonderful but also like if he wouldn't then I'd kind of be like hey sorry like this is what I, this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, I'm so I'm so excited for your for the gay Gatsby. <laughs> it's gonna be absolutely amazing. Um, but you do have a book coming out this year. Um, and by the time this episode goes up, that book will be a week from coming out, I believe. Um, do you mind kind of just um, giving a quick summary to our listeners about what The Mirror Season is about? Sure. So The Mirror Season is about two sexual assault survivors. Uh, one is a queer Latina girl and one is a white boy who are who find their their fates and their survival intertwined in this, in this season of kind of otherworldly magic and, and vanishing trees and secret forests and enchanted pan dulce and the magic of these swallows coming back to their hometown. So this is a, this is a book about, about being a survivor, about, about finding your voice um, about finding your your way forward, and also the ways in which in which survivors help each other, the ways that they they help each other go forward and help each other find their voices and help each other re like rediscover what it is in your heart that that keeps you going. I think there's there's a language that a lot of us as survivors kind of share there's there's ways in which we're able to kind of shorthand some of our experiences and a lot of what's a lot of what's in this book is that sort of shared language of you're finding you're finding community in 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 other people with other people who who understand to some extent what you've gone through because they've they've gone through maybe it's not exactly exactly the same experience but it's it's enough of an experience that they that they know that that they understand and part of that is figuring out figuring out how to how to how to laugh again to mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest this is a book that ended up probably like this this is probably one of my one of my books that has more like more banter like more humor than than I've done before. And part of that I think is because you have to when you're talking mm-hmm. about when you're talking about a subject like this. And also because that's what that's what we do with each other as survivors. Like we we sort of make these safe spaces to laugh. Like this acknowledgement that like you're like you're you're hurting, you're going through something, but also you you find safe spaces with each other like to find what makes you laugh, to joke with each other. So that like that humor was something that was that was unexpected when I was writing it. But as I got deeper into writing it, I thought, you know, this, this has to be, this has to be there. Cause that's part mm-hmm. of, part of my own experience as a survivor. And that's part of my own experience connecting with other survivors. That was a very long answer. I hope some of that is usable. 
no it's all usable and it's all it's all you know really important to hear about and and to talk about and and you know thank you so much for being so um you know open and and being able to share that with us i i feel very honored that we are able to be a platform where you can talk about this this topic and and i think it makes a lot of sense i, I mean i'm i can't claim to know exactly what that feels like but the when you talk about it it's kind of it feels to me almost like you know part of this is like don't don't think that i'm lesser because of like what i've been through kind of a feeling which i think is so important for people to be able to say um and i think like you having a book like this out there that talks about it really honestly will be very very important for a lot of readers um both people like myself who are you know looking in through a window and also for people who are looking in to a mirror um no no pun intended yeah for for sure i i mean i'm a survivor as well and i will say like as a kid having those kinds of books would have really helped me because i didn't really know like who to turn to and like who to talk to about those things and just knowing that like people will have those kinds of books now to turn to to be just knowing you're not alone (laughs) like you know in your head like yeah other people must go through this but that's different from like either speaking to someone else who has gone through it or you know if that's not possible reading about it it can change someone's life to feel that they're not going through something by themselves and that someone else went through it and survived it. And it cannot be easy to write about. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. My, my hope is, is certainly that this book can, can help affirm to, um, to readers who need it, that they're not alone. And, mm-hmm. and also that we, what, whatever we going, we're going through, we all, we all deserve we all deserve healing, um, and we all we all deserve to to know that that we are worthy of that. Yeah, I I think that's such an important message. I agree. Um. <laughs> so, one of the things that we've kind of been doing unofficially lately is kind of, especially when we have an author uh, like you who's kind of been around for a little bit and might have some good perspective um, and be able to see more about um a way out of what we're all going through going through right now um do you have any advice for anyone listening who's either currently trying to break into publishing during a worldwide pandemic or someone who's debuted in the last year and feels kind of dejected because of everything um it could be like just craft advice or career advice or self-care advice anything so i'm thinking I'm thinking kind of of two different things. One of them I'll talk about. Um, I'll talk about from the from the self care perspective. So when I'm thinking of when I'm thinking of mirror season, part of part of writing this kind of book um, was not only whether I wanted to write this kind of book um, because I knew I knew I did want to write um, about being being an essay survivor, and I wanted to do it through the lens of talking about the snow queen talking about why like why this character that we're so quick to villainize like what actually happened to her what um mm-hmm. what makes her so at home in this frozen world like why aren't we asking those questions so i knew i wanted to write that but the the self care part of that is i had to think about timing um and for me the right time to do that um 
I, I reported, um, not long ago. And I, I knew that like the window for me to write this book was when I had reported, but when I didn't, when I didn't know the outcome yet, because I needed to live in that space of possibility. That's a very specific example. But I think often, often there are sometimes that specific, sometimes more general examples of like, when is the right time to write a book for you in terms of self-care? Like, is the, is a particular project going to, um, going to help you at a particular time or is it too close and you need to think like no maybe I need to do this at another time it doesn't mean that you're not you're not going to engage with that project it just mean it just might mean that the order of projects you work on is a little is a little different um so thinking not just about whether you're going to work on something but when you're going to work on something and I think especially especially now especially in the last year there's been a lot of of shifting in terms of like, okay, what is, what is the right thing for me to work on at this time that, that I can, like, I can use my, I can use my creative heart. I can, I can use my, my writer brain, um, but do it in a way that's also, that's also going to look out for myself and is, um, is going to care for myself. So that's the, that's the self-care side of it. Um, I think the, I think the other, the other advice that I'll, I'll share more generally sometimes is like go toward the shiny objects because the shiny objects are going to be like different to you than they are to everyone else. And that's part of what's like, what's special about like your perspective as a storyteller is like, what, what is shiny to you? Like I was talking before, I was talking before about like, I like, I like writing about, I like writing about concepts that, um, that I both love and that I have certain things that, I, certain things that I hate about. Like I have that with, I have that with the Snow Queen. I have that with the Great Gatsby. I had that with, um, with Snow White and Rose Red when I wrote, um, when I wrote Blanca Roja. I had that with the Red Shoes in Dark and Deepest Red. So for me, it's that sort of like, it's that tension between like, what do I, what do I love in these stories? And what do I also like want to pick apart and ask questions about? So that's something that like I find shiny a lot, but everybody finds something else shiny. Everybody like everybody sees something else that's that's particularly sparkly in the world. That's particular that's particularly sparkly in their in their storytelling hearts. So I think going going toward that, like that's where you're gonna find your your most your most beautiful and your your truest stories. And if they like, if they seem, if they seem weird, and I think that's a lot of like, sometimes we think about like, oh, this is like, this is, this is weird. This is strange. Like, what am I working on? I think all the better. Cause it's like, it's you, it's coming from, it's coming from your heart. So I think em, embrace what it is that you love and that you want to, you want to go toward, which is, which is the long way of saying like, go toward the shiny objects. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's easy for me too. Cause I am like go through towards shiny objects is like my default brain setting and if it's pink <laughs> even more um Ooh, yes so that works it's for good me because it's good because it reminds us that this is supposed to be fun like of course no job is fun 100 percent of the time but like we shouldn't we shouldn't buy into the idea of like struggle for your craft <laughs> oh. <laughs> that we're kind of fed a lot um we're su- we're supposed to be able to have fun as writers <laughs> yeah and that the hard parts like they will like they will come like they always do we don't have to go seek them out so the like the idea stage like that that really like what are you going towards stage that should that should be a fun part so Mm-hmm. that's that's something like I think that's something to celebrate like when you when you find something that that 
holds your heart enough that you want to tell that story. Yes, definitely. I love that so much. And and I feel like it makes a lot of sense to hear you talk about it like this because your heart is in so many of your books. So it's kind of like we can totally see the payout from that, from that kind of advice. Like if you want a book that reads as like this emotional piece of the author, then you have to think of how to do this. Um, so I kind of really like, I'm going to, I'm going to re-listen to this podcast <laughs> later and, and, and really meditate on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. I I need to I need to take my own advice about like embracing the weird because for a little bit I was I kept like sort of telling my editor I'm gonna give you like a normal book and, like one of these days I'm gonna give you a normal book and then it was like okay we're gonna we're gonna write the like, we're gonna write the red shoes I'm going to write about I'm going to write about the Snow Queen but I'm gonna completely pick it apart but <laughs> the stuff I the stuff I do it's just um it's my that kind of that kind of weird and that kind of like that that kind of strangeness that often um is in magical realism whether I'm writing magical realism or not um that's part of my sparkly that's part of my shine. I love that so much also don't ever stop writing weird books because there's too much of the same thing over and Mm -hmm. over in publishing and it's so annoying and we need writers who take risks and and write weird stuff that's amazing and delightful and don't stop or I'll be very mad. <laughs> Clarabelle will come find you. <laughs> I will. <laughs> well, it won't be pretty. When Clarabelle yells at you, it's scary. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, everyone who's on this show uh, tells us their most embarrassing publishing related story or something that they'd wish they'd known before they started. You can do uh, one or the other. You can do both. It's up to you. My most embarrassing, embarrassing publishing story. Okay. Um, I'm debating between two of them. And this is funny because I was wearing the exact same sweater for both of them, even though they were at completely different times. Unlucky Um, sweater. Um, so I'm thinking of, I think this was one of my first, one of my first bookstore events, a relative that I won't, a relative who I won't, I won't call out because this relative meant very well, like without talking to me, arranged for me to do a signing when I was going to come visit at a local bookstore the day after Thanksgiving. So like I didn't know about this until I showed up and I don't know how like I don't know like how how this relative like convinced the bookstore to do it but like so there was a table set up and like they're just un- they're just unfortunately like the day after Thanksgiving is just really hard for um for independent bookstores because because people are going for like are are going for deep discounts places so I was sitting, um, but there were some people coming in and I was sitting at this table that they had set up at the front. And this was like, this is way to feathers. This is my, this was my debut novel. So, um, I was up there with my books. Like I didn't, like, I did not sell a single book. And like, this was, like I said, this was an event that just like was sort of sprung on me. So I was like, what am I, what am I doing? But like, this was, um, this was a local bookstore that I knew and loved. So, so every time someone would come in 
And because I was set up near the front, they would ask me like, where's the memoir section? And because I knew like this bookstore, I would tell them, I would direct them like where they were going. So I did this for a while. And like, once I was going to leave and like returned my books to the front and everything and like signed stock, I, I just told the, the, like the manager that was there, I was like, I'm so sorry. And the manager had like watched me direct people that afternoon and was like, you're hired. Oh no, (laughs) my gosh. So I thought, um, so she was really, the manager was so sweet about it. Um, but I thought, okay. And this was, this was early enough because this was, this was so soon after my first book had released. I thought like, okay, like no one showed up to an event. My career is over. Like those very like early on thoughts. And then like the day after that, um, I think it was the day after that, I got the notification that Weight of Feathers was a Morris Award finalist. So wow. I thought, okay, <sighs> maybe my career isn't over. And this was like, this was before before I knew that it's like very normal to like, it's going to happen yeah. sometimes. Like I've been on, I've been like, I've been on bookstore events with like, like huge name authors, like huge bestselling authors. And sometimes you still don't have much turnout. So like, I didn't know at that time that it wasn't like a huge deal. I was mm-hmm. just like, I was just like scared debut author. Like my career is over. My publisher is going to know that nobody came but then like the the day after that getting that news i was like um i was like okay <laughs> oh my gosh yeah i think pretty much everyone we've had on the show has had some sort of story like about an empty bookstore um i think it's totally normal uh, but that's still so hard um <laughs> no matter what or where you are in your career but i think yeah being new must be so terrifying cuz we make up all sorts of stories in our head, don't we? Oh, it was terrifying. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been wonderful being able to chat with you. Um, do you mind letting everyone know where they can find you on the internet? Of course. Um, I am at author.annamariemacklemore.com. And I'm at Twitter at La Anna Marie. So just L-A and first name, no hyphen. Amazing. It's amazing. Thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for can't, having me. Um, can't wait I'm for the gay Gatsby. <laughs> the gay Gatsby. Well, forever official. title. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabelle A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.